0: And welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. In today's bonus episode, we're all about the romance. We have three romance slash rom-com authors who I'll be interviewing to get you all the dirt on either writing in the genre or how to incorporate romance or steamy sex in your own work in progress. So for those of you who listen to the podcast with your children in the car, now might be the time to pause and listen to this at another time. Our first guest today is the author of four YA novels about modern-day witches and historical murderesses. Born in Serbia, she grew up in Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria before moving to the US, where she studied psychology and literature at Yale University, law at Boston University, and publishing at Emerson College. She lives in Chicago with her family, usually writing as Lana Popovich. It's my pleasure to welcome today Lana Harper author of Payback's a Witch. Lana, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to get to chat to you today. I absolutely loved Payback's a Witch. So how how
2: great to get to pick your brain today. Oh, thank you so much, Bianca. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So you started off originally in a different genre. So you were writing YA's, but also about witches. Can you tell us about the transition to this? Because Payback's a Witch is a delightful queer rom-com, obviously very much for adults. Did it accidentally evolve into something that wasn't for young adults or was it something you planned to do
2: That's a great question. So it was actually a very intentional transition on my part. I had been writing young adults for years at that point. So I had two contemporary fantasies and two historical horrors. And so I was at a point where my agent and I were wondering what what the next step was for me. And I had been really wanting to branch out into adults in a very intentional way for a while. So she happened to have had some really illuminating meetings with um, editors in New York. And so she mentioned to me like, you know, Anna, I know you like rom-coms and you've been looking for a way to get your feet wet there. What would you think about writing a witchy rom-com? Because I keep hearing that people would love to acquire that and would love to read it. And I said, you know, that's fantastic because witches are my main brand. That's what I write. But could we put our heads together and think about what the plot might be? And so we just went back and forth and just shot ideas, you know, kind of across the board to each other. And she eventually suggested, What if it was something like John Tucker must die, but everyone is witches? and two of the witches fall for each other. So I have to give credit that kernel of the idea absolutely came from her. And I was like, that's brilliant. I love it. So I went from there, I was like, well, what if there was a magical town and a spellcasting tournament and a vengeance pact? Um, So it was very collaborative. It was really very much um, a process and not something that happened kind of organically. We just put our heads together and decided that that was going to be a good next step for me. I let everything else go that I had been working on and focused completely on that instead.
0: I love hearing about the collaborative aspect. You know, the thing is different agents work very differently. And as, as our listeners have gotten to know, and for me, I love collaborating with my agent. I love bouncing ideas and I love showing her my work along the way and getting her feedback, et cetera. And, you know, not all authors like to work that way, but it can be extremely magical if, you know, you and your agents are just on the same wavelength, especially in terms of changing your genre, because often agents want you to just be on brand right? They want you to just be writing one thing and that's it. And the minute you try to write something else, they kind of freak out because it makes you difficult to market.
2: I have a perspective on that from kind of both sides of the table because I used to be an agent. So while I was writing my YA, I was also literary agenting and I represented Emily Henry, actually, who is the queen of rom-com now before she started writing rom-coms. So I had lovely clients and my main goal with all of them was this collaborative back and forth because to me, it seems the most effective. They have the inspiration, they have those good creative juices, but the agent has the down low on what's going on. And they can be ahead of trends in a way that you can never do by yourself. Because by the time that you're aware of a trend forming, it's already too late for you to market to it effectively. Mm -hmm. So I find it crucial to collaborate with your agent. um, And it's fantastic. And I think even necessary to have an agent who's open to putting their heads together with you for something like that.
0: Yeah, we, we absolutely love Emily Henry and she's been on the podcast. So how amazing, you know, that you uh, represented her early on before she also changed tax. You were publishing under Lana Popovich, I think, and then you moved it to Lana Harper. Was that something that the publisher wanted or is that something that you and your agent decided together before you even went out
2: on submission? It was something that I spoke to my agent about. So Lana Harper is my married name. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to keep those two distinct from each other. I did find that a lot of authors who sort of straddle genres and write in different spaces at the same time seem to find it useful to have some kind of disambiguation for readers. So I just liked the idea of almost, in a sense, starting fresh. I mean, people know that I'm Lana Popovich, too. They find me as both on all of my social media. I always call myself Lana Popovich Harper to prevent confusion. But I thought it would be helpful and also just kind of invigorating for me to have a different name to write my adult books under. So I guess it was a little bit of both.
0: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And are you likely to go back to doing YA simultaneously, or is it now that you've changed genres and you feel like rom-com is where you're going to stay?
2: I would prefer to stay in rom-com and maybe not even just rom-com. I really like women's fiction and also adult speculative fiction, a little bit more genre than what I'm doing now. So I think, of course, if, if the opportunity presents itself and there's some sort of project that I find totally compelling and I just can't resist, then I would absolutely consider young adult again. But I feel so comfortable and happy writing in the adult sphere that I think that would be my preference for at least the next couple of books.
0: Perfect. So let's talk about Payback's a Witch. I especially want to focus on, you know, the world building in terms of Thistle Grove, because that's the town where the story takes place. So for our listeners, Emmy Harlow is a witch and she she grew up in Thistle Grove, but then something happened and she sort of fled to Chicago. But her magical powers, which were already not very strong to start off with, dissipate the further away she gets from Thistle Grove. And then she has to come back for this big tournament that her family is involved in and then her magic sort of starts to come back to her. And I don't want to give too much away, but it is this queer rom-com love story. And there's this fabulous character who's the love interest, who's Talia Av- How do you pronounce the last name? Avramov. Yeah. Um, also, such a kick-ass female protagonist. Absolutely amazing. So let's talk about the world building. But before we get there, you know, I've read in your bio that you're a practicing Wiccan. Can you tell us about how that sort of shaped your approach to the themes that you explore and the kind of stories that you tell?
2: I think for the most part, uh, that really creates a foundation for me. It's just the topic of witchcraft is infinitely interesting to me. Uh, and I've been drawn to that since I was really young. I actually can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in in the occult and in in Wiccan practice. I At this point, I would call myself like a Wiccan light. <laughs> so I don't really do a lot of the more invested rituals and things that take a lot of time because I just don't have as much anymore, especially with a a young son. But I, you know, I have my candles, my tarot, I do all of the wheel of the year holidays. So I still pay attention to it in a way that I find provides sort of constant inspiration for my books. But the kind of magic that you'll see in the Thistle Grove books is very far from sort of the kind of real world magic that Wiccans deal with. That has more to do with with paying respect to whatever deities you find yourself aligned with, and also kind of the more manifestation spells that people do, which is really almost like targeted meditation. Whereas the Thistle Grove witches are so flashy and sparkly, and their magic is so loud and fun in a way that doesn't really. Connect to what, what a Wiccan might tell you magic feels like. So I would say it's more that it provides to me the impetus to be talking about magic and witchcraft all the time, because I find it so personally significant. And do you think
0: it's because you grew up, I mean, you've lived all over the place. You were born in Serbia, grew up in Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. Do you think that that also helped shape your interest in Wicca or, or and in sort of the occult and witchcraft, et cetera, or not really? Do you think it, it would have been the same whether you were growing up in the U.S.? Because I am from South Africa and I find it infinitely fascinating how, where we grow up and what we're exposed to when we're younger really shaped so many of, of our interests later on and the themes that we want to explore in our writing.
2: Oh, absolutely. I would say, if anything, growing up in Eastern Europe pushed me even further in that direction out of a contrarian nature, because a lot of those areas are actually pretty anti-witches. There's some folklore traditions. So if you can get your grandma to kind of open up to you about the sort of little spells people used to do that weren't even considered witchcraft, then that that's kind of always there beneath the surface. But the church, uh, the Christian Orthodox Church in most of the countries that I lived has such a strong presence that I would say there is not a positive perspective on witchcraft. So for me, it was very much the kind of internal calling. Once I started reading about it, I was like, this feels true to me. It feels real. It feels compelling. And I I do think a lot of people who are attracted to the topic uh, and to that lifestyle seem to feel it internally, even if they're not, if they don't grow up in circumstances that are particularly welcoming or supportive of that inclination. So I guess, yes, <laughs> uh, that's those are areas with very rich histories and a lot of very cool folklore traditions, but not ones that generally push you in that direction almost the opposite
0: yeah that's that's really fascinating and you know for me um i'm the same as you i've always had a huge interest in this i've actually also just finished a novel about witches you know my fascination with witches is just how very feminist they are you know and i think that this is why going back however many hundreds of years witches were feared and were hunted down because so many of them were single they refused to get married they refused to follow social norms and conventions they had power in that you know know at a time when women weren't educated they knew remedies and they knew how to help people Uh, a woman especially would turn to them because they were so powerless at that time so
2: it's just so rich in in feminist themes I think that's the the growing appeal I think we've all seen the resurgence of Wicca and even just witchcraft uh, outside of any kind of religious context you see it on social media like even people like to poke fun at the millennial witch because they're There are so many glam witch aesthetics happening on TikTok and on Instagram, but I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful thing because it's exactly what you said. It's like a reclaiming of feminine power and this sort of badass, you can't, hold me down. I'm in control of my life. I'm strong. I don't depend on you. I don't have to be attractive to you. And at the same time, there's sort of a built-in community to it. It's like like a sisterhood sense. So there's the strength, the unity, and then also just the beauty of it because so much of what witches do is ritualized and lovely. There are these gorgeous crystals and candles. And so it's sort of self-care at its highest level. So it's indulgent and powerful at the same time, which I think is incredibly, you know, attractive. To a lot of people, especially right now. Um, And of course, it's threatening to the patriarchy. Absolutely. You're like, I'm my own person. I'm fierce and powerful and I do what I want. So I think that that's why it's really gaining traction in a way it hasn't before.
0: Yeah, it's been wonderful to see the resurgence, you know, in literature, especially. So talking about the world building and the rules of magic. So Thistle Grove is just so lovely. The town is just so lovely. And the different families and how the families run the town and how the the tournament works. I, I know you said earlier that you did some brainstorming with your agent, but this is something that there's this kernel of the idea, which is awesome. But then you really have to come up with a congruent kind of system of magic that makes sense, that everything in this world makes sense. So could you tell us a bit more about how much time you spent developing that ahead of writing? Or was it a case of you started writing, got to a point and realized, oh, this doesn't make sense. So I need to come up with a rule of magic that'll make sense of this.
2: That's a wonderful question because in this instance uh, I really went against my typical inclination to pants everything <laughs> so I used to be the opposite of a plotter I just didn't plot things I always went with the flow but in this case I really felt like I had to have a solid grasp of this town which is really a microcosm there's so much going on there that you need to I needed to understand all the dynamics before I really plunged into the plot so first once I knew there was going to be a spellcasting tournament and there would be four families I sat down and started thinking okay what do I want these four families to be able to do, how are they different from each other. How do their holdings, their business holdings and their domains, sort of like their estates, how do those reflect their powers and also their personalities? How do they relate to each other? Who are the allies and who are the natural enemies? What is their power source? What are their power differentials? How does this affect the way that they interact with the town? So a lot of this, I think once I started going, delving deeper into it, It felt quite organic. It almost felt, and this sounds so cheesy to say, but it really was true in this one instance. It felt like I was discovering something that was already there. I think because the free association that it takes to kind of build something like this from the ground up felt very effortless and joyful. And so it seemed almost like, you know, I I was just excavating something that existed that I had maybe dreamed about at some earlier time, even though it was more complex and it took more planning than anything else that I had written before. So I guess it is, it was definitely strategized and there was a lot of thought that went into it before I started writing, but it also wasn't, it wasn't like heavy lifting. It was really enjoyable and it helped shape the trajectory of the story once I started plotting as well.
0: Well, certainly, you know, the, that effortlessness came across in in the writing. So it's wonderful to hear that it felt, you know, so effortless because it, it was just such a, you know, rom-coms aren't my, my u- usual genre. And I tell our listeners to read outside of your genre all the time. If you're just reading one particular genre, there's so many things that you're missing out on in terms of elements of craft, in terms of all kinds of things, because a good story well told is a good story well told, whether it's literary fiction whether it's rom-com whether it's a thriller and and there was just so much in this book that was really admirable in terms of elements of craft, besides the fact that the story was just so lovely and that it was like a warm, fuzzy kind of hug of a book. And it was also really page turning. So yeah, that that definitely came across in terms of the, the reading experience. Something else that I wanted to ask was your structure when you were plotting out the book. Did you use something like a saves the cat kind of action beat structure in terms of knowing when to up the stakes, when to have a false victory or a false defeat, etc. Or is it by this point in your career, these kinds of things just come to you
2: naturally and
0: instinctively?
2: I would say that it's so internalized at this point that I don't, I don't rely on any external structure and I don't use beats, at least not knowingly. I just feel when something needs to happen. And part of that is the experience of having written all of those young adult books. But part of it is also my experience having written for um, Pixelberry Studios who produce the Choices Choose Your Own Adventure apps. I don't know if you've seen those. Some of them are pretty popular of them is episodes and you'll see advertisements for that pretty frequently and then choices is the one that I wrote for but they do the kind of elaborate adventures in which you're constantly having to pay attention to plot and everything is done through dialogue so as an external screenwriter you're following the loose beat plot that they give you and once you've done it enough times it almost is like you learn a song and you acquire a sense for that rhythm of okay now it's time to up the stakes oh now we have this- moment of high drama. Now we bring it in a little bit. Now we have the emotions. Now we start building back up to something really intense. And so it's really just like watching if you've ever had an ECG or anything like that, that kind of natural up and down of a sine wave or a heartbeat. You learn to feel your way around it and you can tell when it's missing. So previously, I used to require a lot of editing for plot. My first two books, it was like, ugh, the revisions were 70% of the work. Almost everything got changed. But the more times I did it, I think the more intuitive the process started to feel. And a lot of that, I I ascribe to my experience doing that external screenwriting for them. Yeah, that's fascinating
0: to hear as well, because for our listeners in the beginning, uh, we we discuss structure so much and action beats and your inciting incidents and your key events and building up to this and building up to that. And it feels so formulaic that, you know, many writers hate it and they're like, oh, I hate having to think about this. But it does. You know, the more you pay attention to that, the more instinctive it kind of becomes where you just know at what point in the story what's required. So the more you do that, definitely the better you're going to be at it. And um Lana, I know that in the marketing material, it kind of said... Payback, of so Witches is kind of a love letter to Halloween. And even though so much of this book is a love letter to Thistle Grove, I kind of feel like it was also a love letter to Chicago. There were so many things that you wrote about Chicago and products from Chicago that you mentioned in the book that at one point I was like, is Lana getting paid product placement to put all these amazing things in her book? You know, there was the coffee and there was, I think it was beer and it was restaurants mentioned. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Yes, of course. That's so funny. I never thought of it that way. I did that because when I was writing those parts of the book, I had just moved here. So I moved from Boston. I started the book in Boston and then halfway through I moved to Chicago with my family and it was kind of like Screwball 90s comedy style. We had an RV and two pets and a baby and my grandma my, my mom, my kids grandma in a van. So it was just very chaotic. <laughs> yeah, and we got here and I was like, "Wow, this is such a cool place." And it was mid-pandemic, so of course it was a very different experience to what Chicago is like normally. But at the time I was still able to to do a little bit of exploring, and I loved it. I had wanted to live in Chicago for years and years, so it really felt so dreamy. And I, I've been to all of the places that uh, that I describe in the book, and so I wanted it. I wanted it to feel like the experience of someone who moved to Chicago and genuinely fell in love with it, which is what Emmy did. Even though there are parts of it that she legitimately hates, like the weather. For example, today the fog is so soupy that it looks like milk outside the window, and And Emmy's used to this perfect Halloween snow globe weather year round. And she's like, what is this? (laughs) This is garbage. I hate it. But she also has all of these wonderful restaurants and all these things that Thistle Grove couldn't offer her. So no, I was not paid any product placement fee. But I, I would love to be paid. So I know. Uh, I, I was, I was thinking, man, we should start getting paid for product placement because all
0: these TV shows. I mean, you can see when product placement is being paid for in a show because all the things are Apple products or all the beer is this or all the whatever is that. And I'm like, I tell you, authors should be getting paid for this stuff because it's free advertising.
2: If you want to start a petition or a movement, I'm with that thousand behind you I think we should be paid for all of that and one of the things that I loved and that I constantly talked about was there's this uh black magic coffee drink the dark matter uh really pushes here it's delicious it's one of the best and I'm not a big coffee person but this was so good so I was like of course I have to put it in my book about witches so I wish they would just throw me a bone for a dollar or two that would be yeah, awesome well if it helps
0: I'm heading to Chicago sometime soon and I have got that on my list of coffee that I have to have now pure- because of you and I've made notes of some of the other places as well so you know Chicago people who are listening have a look at how uh, Lana's writing has inspired me to to go and pursue these products in these places so just a thought out there for publishers etc and advertisers In terms of your characters, Lana, how do you do character development? Because I know in this instance, it was the premise that came to you first. Well, genre, rom-com, witchy rom-com, then queer witchy rom-com. Then when it came to the character development, how do you spend time
2: developing
0: those characters to make them so fully formed?
2: Yeah, that's that's another step of that initial process. I think I've transitioned to being a loose, outliner rather than a pantser, because now once I have the sort of large strokes of the plot down, the next thing I do is write kind of abrogated character sheets for everyone. So for Emmy, I was thinking the thing that I that I always start with is the emotional arc. So I have to know where she begins, how she's going to grow, what are her internal and external conflicts. And these are often independent from the plot at large. Like her development as a person isn't necessarily influenced by the outcome of either the vengeance pact or the spellcasting tournament. So I start with the emotional arc for each character, usually just the main character, the love interest. And then if I have side characters that are particularly important, and then I think about them as people, what do they, like, what are some expressions that they frequently use in speech? What are their favorite foods, their dislikes? Are they warm and fuzzy? Are they physically affectionate? Are they standoffish? So I just try to imagine them as much as I can, even to the extent of like, what do they smell like? What do they wear? So that I can deal with them as someone who in my mind is as full blown a person as possible, because I find that it's much easier to kind of sneak all of that stuff in. If you're behaving as though this person already exists and you're just layering it into the pros. I didn't use to do any of this. I used to just let characters become who they were throughout the book but I found that it was almost inefficient. I would have to go back and edit for consistency so frequently and kind of add in the layers later. So now I like to establish my cast early and then let them lead me on the plot.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. And for our listeners, you know, there are so many different ways to approach it. So what Lana was talking about now, the layering, that's something that I do a heck of a lot in terms of my writing. In each draft, you know, I know the character more. And so I go back and I change things and I make the person. Personality come out more, but you know, there's also ways to do that up front, like Lana says, to to be more efficient with your time so that you don't need quite as many revisions down the line. What I like to do now is I imagine a character kind of as an actor or an actress, and then I imagine their gestures as this person gestures in whatever role they were playing. And so that feels very real to me because I struggle to imagine a character you know, it's a, they say in the same way that you can never dream a face that you haven't seen before. I struggle to make up a character completely from scratch, imagining their gestures unless I think about people I know or actors or actresses or whatever. But that's, there's so many different ways to do that, right? So Lana, we're almost at the end of our time. It's been so amazing chatting with you. Have you got advice for those writing in the rom-com genre? I know we have a lot of listeners who are writing rom-coms. What advice do you have for them as they finish their manuscripts and try and get represented presentation.
2: I think if they're at that stage, uh, they have probably already heeded my main piece of advice, which is to always read very broadly in the genre that you're pursuing. Uh, so if they're, if they've got that covered, then I think the next thing to really pay attention to is to try to clarify their premise and make it as hooky as possible. Because I think rom-com has evolved to the point where there's so much of it and so much of it is high quality that the things, the books that really stand out are the ones that are truly high Concept where someone has captured something that hasn't quite been done that way before. So if there's a way to go back and kind of sharpen your story, make it make an elevator pitch that is just very ir- like irresistible within the first couple of minutes of conveying it. I think that can sometimes be done with a few very easy tweaks. And uh, to me, it's helpful to think of how do you capture your book? Are there movies? Are there other books that you can comp into? How is your book like other books, but slightly different? So I think it's kind of that strategic high level thinking that is probably the best thing to focus on if you're already to that manuscript querying level.
0: Amazing. And and for our listeners who are trying to put together lists of agents that they want to query, could you tell us who your agent is and
2: what um, literary agency they're with? Of course, it's Taylor Haggerty. She's at Root Literary. They are phenomenal. Both her and Holly Root, who is the agency owner, are just these rom-com mavens. They're brilliant. I also really love Rebecca Potos, who is at Reese Literary Agency. She used to be a client as well. um, And I know she agents a lot of rom-com now. So those are all fantastic options. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lorna. We wish you much success with this book. For our listeners, just a
0: reminder, the book is Paybacks the Witch. It's such an amazing read, so much to learn um, and unpack there. So definitely go and get that. I know you're going to enjoy it as much as I did.
3: My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal.
0: Our next guest is a copywriter turned author who wants to make the world a lovelier place, one kissing story at a time. Her love of romance began when she was eight and she discovered her auntie's stash of romance novels. She's been hooked ever since. When she's not writing, you can find her hiking, eating chocolate and perfecting her lumpier recipe. She lives in Bend, Oregon with her husband and her adorable cat, Salem. It's my pleasure to welcome Sarah Echevarria. Smith. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, Bianca. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to be chatting with you. So to kick us off, could you tell us a bit about your latest novel that's coming out? The title is
4: On Location and it's a sexy rom-com about a woman named Alia. She's a producer for an outdoor TV network and she just got her big break to be the showrunner for a series about the national parks in Utah, which is her dream come true. Uh, But there's one problem. Her newest crew member, Drew, is the guy she had the most amazing first date with, but then he ghosted her. (laughs) So the book is pretty much just her navigating that very awkward situation while trying to put on this uh, series of her dreams. And obviously there is tension and banter and a happily ever after that I think uh, lands pretty well at the end of the book.
0: Amazing, amazing. So you said you were drawn to romance novels from when you were eight and you found your own stash. I think all women, that's a rite of passage for all women is finding somebody's romance novels and then reading them probably way too young. What is it about the romance genre that you love so much? What is it about it that attracted you? So
4: I think, I mean, I guess at that age, when I was that young and I stumbled upon them, I think the naughtiness of them appealed to me at first because they were talking about kissing and touching each other. And that's not exactly something that I read a lot about at that age. But as I got older, I just really love the joy and the happiness of romance and rom-com. I feel like just the guarantee that there's going to be a happily ever after at the end is such um, a wonderful thing, especially in this day and age when I think life can be really stressful and you, you know, you're just doing your best to live your life. And it's kind of hard sometimes to avoid like really negative stuff like news and personal issues, you know, that kind of thing, not to get into super unpleasant things. I guess I just feel like romance books and rom-com books are just really wonderful and happy escapes and distractions from when life can be really stressful. And I've always really found a lot of comfort in that. And I I, I know that I can always escape to the story where everything's going to be okay, where the the characters are going to have wonderful things happen to them and everyone who's terrible is going to get their comeuppance, which they deserve, which doesn't always happen in real life. (laughs) So there's just a lot of comfort and joy in them. And that's what draws them to me.
0: Yeah, it is very much like comfort food. And that goes to, you know, all the haters of the genre will be like, oh, it's so formulaic and you know exactly what's going to happen. So what's the point of reading them? But I mean, that speaks to exactly what you just said. You know, you come to them for the comfort because you know that it's going to end well. So you don't have to worry about that.
4: Yes, that's exactly, that is exactly why I love them. Yes, well said.
0: There was actually a heated debate. Well, not just one. There have been many, many heated debates on literary Twitter over the years. I think somebody wrote about how they were writing romance, but the couple didn't end up together at the end. And then there were these heated responses with people saying, if the couple doesn't end up together at the end, then it's not romance. It's not proper romance. What's your What's your take on that? Is it possible to write a romance novel where the couple doesn't end up together at the end? Or would you agree that's just not romance?
4: I'm of the opinion that there has to be a happily ever after or a happily for an hour. The couple has to end in a happy moment together for it to be technically a romance. And if there, I know that there are books, like you said, that that doesn't happen. And that to me is more romantic fiction and that's okay. Like, Those books are wonderful and they deserve to exist just like any other genre. But I just think that there is, it's really important to follow the trope and the structure of that because I think, I mean, romance readers are really loyal and they, I think they take a lot of joy out of the structure and the tropes of that genre. And um, I mean, I don't think that there's anything wrong with expecting a a happily ever after when you invested that much time and emotion into, into a book. And it's so like characteristic of the genre. I really don't like (laughs) saying that, like, or I really don't like when I read something and then I'm expecting a happily ever after, after because it's been marketed and sold to me as a romance and then it it doesn't, you know, it doesn't deliver. And I've had that happen to me and it's so upsetting. And it's, you know, I know it's not a big deal. It's not, the world is ending, but it's this small piece of joy that I think gives people a lot of happiness. And I don't think you should mess with people's happiness. You should just deliver the happily ever after that was promised when they heard it was a romance. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I mean, that goes for any genre. And what Sarah's just said is so important. And, you know, when I'm teaching creative writing, I say to my students, you need to know your genre because so many writers go, oh, my writing isn't this and it isn't this and it isn't this. Well, that's cool. But what is it? Because the conventions of the genre are so important. There are tropes that the readers will be expecting. It's like trying to write a murder mystery with there being zero red herrings, like no instances where, you know, the reader's like, ah, it's so-and-so. And then it turns out not to be so-and-so. Da-da-da. And to, For me to read a thriller where there are no red herrings, uh, there's no wrong people I've suspected, and then at the end the person turns out to be the person I thought it was the whole time, I'd be like, what the hell, man? I've been shortchanged. So I understand completely why people in the genre, you know, why readers of the genre expect that and why they get upset when they don't get that. So absolutely. Can we talk about, so this is your third novel and something that I like to speak about with authors who've got more than sort of one or two novels out in the world is how, when you're writing the novel, it's very much yours. It's a solitary process You guard everything closely and then it goes out into the world. And as soon as it goes out into the world, it gets reviewed either by professional reviewers or people on Goodreads or people on Amazon. And that changes the whole nature of the dynamic of it. How have you navigated all of that as a writer?
4: Yeah, that's a really great point to bring up. I I definitely think that it really helps that I don't don't actively go out and read reviews for my books. I just think that that's not good for my mental (laughs) well-being. Reviews are really important and they're great for readers. And I just, as an author, I think for me, it's best if I just stay away from that because I think it's more important that I stay focused on the process of writing the story, of revising, of putting out books that, you know, I hope are a fun and exciting, steamy, cute, funny experience for readers to read. And I know that there are some authors who do read their reviews and that's great. They have the mental strength to do that. I I don't, but there are times when um, readers tag me in really wonderful reviews and that's great. That's super fun. And reading those just means the world. So it's, it's definitely a learning process. And I think you just have to kind of decide as you go like what do you feel comfortable with as the author and whatever that is stick with that and don't let anybody else's opinion you know sway you or don't I think some people are like oh well don't you want to know like their feedback on this and this and um I mean for me I like I have beta readers I have editors I have people in the process who can give me feedback constructive criticism that I find really helpful when I'm writing the book. But honestly, when the book is published and it's out there as personal and as much as it means to me, it's not really mine anymore. It's for, readers to consume, if if that makes sense.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, while you still have it, you know, before it goes to your publisher, it's yours. And after that, it becomes other people's. And, you know, it's open to all kinds of interpretation. It's lovely when readers tag you in great reviews. Not so great when readers tag you in shitty reviews. And (laughs) we have yet to figure out why readers do this. It's like, what was the point of telling me my book sucked and you had so many problems with it? It's not like I can change it now, even if I wanted to. Like, what was the point of that?
4: Yeah, I completely agree. And I and again, I understand, you know, no one book is going to be everyone's cup of tea. I get that. Every, you know, you have a right to like or dislike a book. But yeah, definitely, please don't tag authors in bad reviews. That's not really, it doesn't really do anything other than
0: hurt our feelings. Absolutely. Yeah, we're people too, man. So let's talk about, Sarah, how romance has changed over the years. Because I'm pretty sure that the books, you know, your aunt was reading, when you were eight are quite different to romance novels these days. What I'm loving about romance these days is that there is the romance, there is the steaminess, there's all the stuff that we want from romance, but how romance authors are working in all kinds of serious topical themes like the Me Too movement and misogyny and a woman's place in the world and woman's independence and things like that. Now, obviously not all romance because there are still, you know, a ton of books out there that are like sort of Harlequin romance romance that are still very much about a boss and his secretary. And all of those books are like completely about almost these inappropriate work relationships where the power dynamic is completely messed up. But there's readers who absolutely love that. But then, you know, your books have got more serious themes in them. So can we talk about that for a second as well?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So specifically in On Location, there are instances of workplace sexism and workplace harassment. The main character, Alia, she works for this very big deal television network and all of the executives are white males who from time to time doubt her and give her a lot to deal with and don't really give her like the tools to effectively run her show which is super frustrating. I think it was important for me to explore themes like that in this book and in other books that I've written uh, because it's a real I mean it's a real issue. It's a problem that, unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of women still experience today, even with you know the Me Too movement and Time's Up and the things that have happened to help women in the workplace to advocate for themselves. And it's really frustrating, but I also think When you explore a heavier topic like that in the context of like a sexy rom-com or romance, there's an element where you are able to maybe introduce a theme that some people wouldn't expect to read in a romance or a rom-com. And it gives a new sort of depth to the story. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with, you know, lighter romances, rom-coms where There aren't serious issues, but I think at least for me, I like the mix in my, or I like to mix in my writing, you know, fluffy, steamy, funny moments of, of a romance with more serious talks, because I think it's a really different way to X to sort of introduce serious topics to readers and to really to show that like this is an issue and you know there's a way that it's going to be solved and addressed in the in the context of this romance and rom-com and in a way it's kind of aspirational too because I mean I think we can all unfortunately think of instances in real life where there was workplace harassment or there was workplace sexism and like nothing happened there were no consequences nothing improved and I think in the worlds that I write in my books I always want the good guys to prevail. I want, you know, the people who are doing crappy things to be reprimanded and punished because, you know, in the real world, that's not always what happens. And it can be pretty demoralizing to when you listen to event after event and things just don't seem to be, cha- seem to be changing. And I think um, in modern, or at least in the rom-coms and romances of recent times, I think I'm seeing and I'm noticing, like kind of a surge in addressing more Um, more serious topics or topics that have more depth than there used to be. And I think that that's a really, it's a really progressive thing for romance and rom-com genre to do, honestly.
0: Yeah. And it's amazing because, you know, even the headiness of meeting someone and falling in love and all of that, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. The woman who's meeting someone and falling in love is a member of society. And so will be affected by society in many, many ways. And to, you know, show them having this heady romance while also being very firmly part of society, I think, is a great way of doing it. And like you say, a lot of readers come to it not expecting that. And I think it feels like an extension of women's fiction, which deals with issues that women have to deal with. And so I feel like it's a bit of blurring of the lines there, but with romance, which is awesome. Something that I want to ask you about is writing steamy scenes. Because a week or so, a few weeks ago, actually on the podcast, we spoke about someone who'd submitted their work, because we have two agents on the podcast who read and critique query letters and opening pages. And uh, they said that the sex scene had been done really well. And then we had a whole bunch of listeners reach out afterwards and say, yes, but how do you do it well? Like, what's your advice for writing steamy scenes? Like, what words can you use? What words can you not use? So from a master in this, could you give our listeners advice on that? Like, how do you approach that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I I just want to say I'm not an expert. I would never (laughs) claim to be an expert on writing or anything. But I definitely am a writer who I love writing steamy sex scenes. I think they're really fun. I think it's an opportunity to show in the in the narrative and in the story this moment when these two characters who have been working toward whatever goal it is like if they're enemies to lovers or if they're working together if they're friends and they're becoming you know romantic partners it's just a really fun moment to show all of this all the time that they spent bantering and flirting and here's the physical manifestation of that in in the love scene so For me, I guess I just, this is a very (laughs) overly simple explanation and I totally realize this, but I just think about what would be fun to have happen in a steamy, sexy encounter. And I just write that down. And I think, unfortunately, I think that like sex or things, anything to having to do with sex still makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I think that that kind of plays into why it's so difficult for some people to write sex scenes. I also think it's really important to like read what you're trying to write. So there are a lot of, modern or contemporary romance genres and in romances of every subgenre where the sex scenes are done really well. Um, And if you want to learn how to write a good sex scene, I think it's really important to read what you consider is a good sex scene. So I think I also think it's really important to pay attention to what the characters are going through in that moment, like what what they're feeling, what they're thinking, what are they touching each other a lot? Are they talking a lot? What is going through their Brain As they're finally getting into this moment where they're getting to have sex with the character, they've been, you know, spending however many pages trying to get to this moment. And I also think it's really important to prioritize consent, specifically enthusiastic consent, because I think, unfortunately, for a really long time, consent wasn't really established in a lot of romance books or even like non-romance books, unfortunately. And I think we're at a time when that's just not acceptable anymore, thankfully. So showing that these two characters are very excited to finally get into bed together, wherever they're, wherever they're having this moment is really important. And as far as like what words to use, I guess it depends on your genre, because I know that there are some hot button words like dick, clit, all that stuff. It's, Um, It just depends on what, how you, how comfortable you feel as, as the writer. So I think for me, it's just paying attention to the moment and trying to be as authentic as possible and making sure that you are, that you're having fun. Like sex is supposed to be fun. And when you're writing it, I think it should be fun too. So it's, and also reading sex scenes so that you're familiar with what you're trying to write. I think there's a lot that can be learned by just reading other really good romance books that do something really well that you are trying to do as a writer.
0: Yeah. Cause I've read, you know, some amazing sex scenes in books, but for me to try and write them, I don't know. I just, I'm cringing and I'm just, this is terrible. I think the closest I came to it was I had like two characters pretty much dry humping each other <laughs> in an elevator. And it was just like, it was cringeworthy as I was writing this, but also there's so many romance novels lately that have become really explicit there's some that I've read recently that I was like holy hell this is like super explicit and then there's other ones that you know euphemisms are still used where it's you know more like the camera lens is like all blurry rather than right in there in the middle of the action so I suppose that depends on the kind of romance you're writing or you know for the listeners out there who aren't writing romance necessarily maybe you're writing literary fiction or maybe you're writing you know a thriller in which there's a sex scene or whatever but I think advice to read those scenes is incredibly important. I think one of the sexiest scenes actually that I remember reading was in Atonement in the library. And that was a very literary book. Um, And it's not often that literary writers get it right. Because for those of you who are new listeners to the podcast, I think in our very first season, I interviewed a uh, bookseller and we were talking about the bad sex awards that are given to literary writers who've written really bad sex scenes. And we think because they're such great writers, they'll be able to write sex, but that's not true.
4: Yeah, that is so, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that there's kind of an expectation where some readers are like, oh, well, this person's you know, written these many books and they're highly regarded like of course they're gonna you know write a good sex scene and that's definitely not always the case I one of the things that came to mind while you were talking was um the importance of foreplay and sometimes how that is kind of just glossed over and that's one of the things that I try to make sure that I include in any sex scene that I write is a realistic amount of foreplay and I understandably like everybody is different one person's idea of what is like enough foreplay is not going to be um the same as the next person but just showing that your character is building up to a point especially female characters um I know that some people have an issue because it doesn't seem realistic with how quickly that they can orgasm in a sex scene which for me that is very like annoying too as I'm like oh my gosh this is not real she wouldn't just like she wouldn't just like come at the drop of a hat you know like it, you'd have to interrupting work
0: like Vesuvius. <laughs>
4: Yeah, exactly. So, um, including an appropriate amount of foreplay is really important, I think, to writing a good sex scene, just as a as a something to tag on there.
0: <laughs> no, it, definitely for women as well. Like, there's there's some books that it's like over in two seconds, and like you say, zero foreplay, and you were like, "This is not believable," and two, this did not sound very fun to me at all. So, yeah, hundred percent agree with you. Agree with you there, Sarah. Our time is pretty much almost up in terms of. Advice you have for writers who are working in the romance genre. What advice can you leave our our romance listeners with?
4: I think it's really important to not be too hard on yourself. I think there are a lot of people who have like goals set for themselves. Like I want to get an agent. I want to query. I want to publish. And obviously goals are really important, but understand that if you want to go the traditional publishing route, it's a really difficult industry to break into. It's not impossible, obviously, but give yourself some grace, understand that things will come in their time. Just Keep that in mind when you're, you know, going through the query trenches or publishing your book or whatever it is. I also think it's really important to find a group of other writers in that same genre that you write to s- surround yourself with and connect with. So you can reach out and lean on each other and support each other in good moments and bad moments. Because one of the things that I've learned navigating the publishing industry is amazing as it is, like it is a ton of ups and downs and it can change from day to day, week to week, month to month. Like you could be riding a high one day and then the next week you get really terrible news and it just sucks. So just making sure that you have a group of people that you can count on to support you because it's, I think it's pretty impossible to navigate this alone. And I mean, Thankfully, we are, we all have access to things like zoom, social media, any, pretty much everything online. You can connect with people anywhere around the world. And it didn't always used to be that way. So you don't even need to have like somebody with you physically. You just, you just have to have a support group who's going to be there for you and help you through the crazy, unpredictable thing that is writing
0: (laughs) and publishing. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. And that is what we will leave you with. Things will come in their own time, whether it's your characters after a lot of foreplay or whether it's your writing career. Thank you, Sarah. It's been an absolute joy chatting with you. For our listeners, this book is On Location. That is the title of it, but Sarah has written two other novels. So if you enjoyed this one, go and check out her backlist as well. And and Sarah, thanks so much for sharing that wonderful advice with us. We really appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much, Bianca. This was such a pleasure.
0: Our next guest was born in Nigeria and immigrated to Canada at the age of 12. She has a journalism degree from the University of Toronto and works as a communication specialist in Ontario, Canada. When she isn't writing, she's watching Homecoming for the hundredth time and trying to match Beyonce's vocals to no avail. I think we can all relate to that. Our guest today <laughs> is Jane Igarro. Jane, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Your latest novel is your second novel. It's called The Sweetest Remedy.
5: Could you yes. tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. Okay, so The Sweetest Remedy is about Hannah Bailey, a biracial woman who has never had a relationship with her Nigerian father. So she doesn't know that much about that aspect of her identity. When she gets news that her father has passed away, and she's been invited to Nigeria for the funeral, she contemplates and then decides to go. While in Nigeria, she goes to um, Banana Island, which is a very affluent area in Lagos, Nigeria. While there, she meets her brother and sisters for the first time, and she tries to connect with them, though it's quite difficult. In the process, she does fall in love with a family friend, and she really discovers a lot about herself, and she grows, and she learns about her culture, her father, and decides the kind of person she wants to be. Right, so
0: I think this book is, marketed as a rom-com. Is that right,
5: Jane? there's aspects of, I would call it like a romance, a rom-com and a women's fiction at the same time. There's a romance in it and that's a a huge part of the story, but it's also about a woman who's discovering a lot about herself and connecting with her family.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because as you were describing the story, I was saying, wow, there's a lot of way deeper elements there. We've got a whole search for identity and and everything there, which is not something that you sort of equate with just a rom-com. But you know, we've been chatting about how romance novels and rom-coms these days have becoming much more layered, you know, it's not just about the romance, it's about all kinds of women's issues. It's about diversity, it's about identity. So that's wonderful to see that coming through in your work. Could you chat about that a bit in terms of the themes you want to explore when you set about writing a novel?
5: Sure. So yes, romance novels, rom-coms, they are, these days are very layered. A lot of authors are writing about identity and culture and just like social issues. I've written, I've read a lot of romance novels over the past two years like that with a lot of layers. My first novel, Ties That Tether, have similar themes to this novel, The Sudest Remedy, themes of identity and culture, and just basically the ties we have with our family and how that defines us, defines the kind of person we want to be, and also love and self-love. So in this novel, The Sweetest Remedy, my main character really struggles with her identity and discovering who she wants to be based on her Nigerian identity. And she wonders if that determines who she's supposed to be. And so she also struggles with loving herself and defining who she wants to be. So I just wanted to focus on self love and maybe different aspects of love, romance and familial love as well as self-love so these are like strong themes throughout the book as well as identity and culture
0: that's amazing so so when the story comes to you could you tell us a little bit more about your process do you sit there and a character comes to you and you're like yes I love this character is it a plot or is it a premise or do you say these are the themes that I'd really like to explore in my next novel and then you give some thought to the best kind of character who would suit the exploration of that how how
5: does your process work in terms of getting ideas? I don't think my process is completely linear. I think it depends on the book. But for this book, I had the the plot first and I, I watched an African movie, which is one of my favorite movies, a Nollywood movie called Chief Daddy about a family, a very loud, big, chaotic family who come together for the funeral of the patriarch. And it's just a, a hilarious movie. And I wanted to put my own twist on that. So I had the idea first and I kind of put my own twist on that. And then the character always usually comes as I'm writing. I never go into a story knowing the kind of character I'm gonna have. I find that the characters tend to have a life of their own and determine who want who they want to be. For example, in my third novel, which I recently submitted to my editor, I went into the story with a character who was a lawyer, and as I continued writing the book, my character kept making references to science, even though I know nothing about science. But she somehow did, and so I decided. Well, she decided. I think that she was actually a geneticist, and so I did a career change for her. So sometimes characters usually just take on a life of their own
0: I find. Uh, uh, yeah 100% I love that and I love authors who give their characters leeway to do this because I know a whole bunch of authors really plot very tightly they plot everything out and then I almost feel claustrophobic on behalf of their characters because it's like well you you haven't given your character any room to maneuver in the story to really reveal who they are to you so I love it when I hear that other authors allow their characters to kind of dictate who they want to be and sometimes that changes the story completely
5: yeah for sure I used to I like to plan the plots like the acts and know what comes after that not too loosely but just enough that I get an idea but for characters I just like them to tell me who they want to be I think it's fun and I think it also surprises me like ooh, I didn't know that was gonna happen or you were gonna do that but it's it's fun it's always a surprise for me as author myself
0: yeah yeah totally it makes me think very much what you've just said of the author um he's a Canadian author Alan Bradley and he's written the Flavia Deleuze series The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie and it's so funny when I interviewed him he has a character who's a young girl who is a scientist and she's an expert in poisons and uh, I said to him you know when you came up with this character like were you a science major did you know a lot about poisons and he said, absolutely not. He said he knew nothing about Poison, but this character just seemed to know about Poison and he had to do research to keep up with her. So so that's always interesting.
5: Yeah, Um, for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Jane, in terms of your journey to publication, because this is now your second novel, could you tell us from when you started writing, how long it took you to get an agent, what that journey was like for you? Because our listeners are mostly in the querying trenches. They're working on novels and and trying to get agents etc and they love hearing stories about how other authors
5: did it sure Um, I'm really bad with keeping tracks of dates. I have a diary, a journal for this reason, because I'm so bad with keeping tracks of dates and years. But it took me um, a long time to get uh, an agent. Um, Like many authors, I sent, I wrote my first book in high school. It was a literary fiction and it was really terrible now that I think about it. Um, so, (laughs) So I will admit that I didn't get Any, not even one request, understandably. Then I wrote my second novel, which was a paranormal romance, which was better. I went to, was better than my first, I went to a conference in New York. I think it was called the Algonquin Conference, Writers' Conference, and it was really so helpful. I connected with some authors, one who lived in Canada. When we came back, she kindly read my manuscript and she told me all the places that it was lacking and I needed that. And after she told me all that, I decided to put that book away because there was no way I could help her. The book was... She couldn't survive. So I let go of that book. And I started writing another book, Ties That Tether, which is my first novel that's been published. And it was a story that I could relate to very easily. So I wrote that and I knew that this was the book. I just had a feeling. I still got rejections, though I got some requests from agents while querying. I continued to improve from what agents told me. A lot of agents were so kind and they told me what needed to be done, what worked and what didn't. And I just took all their feedback and I used that to help the manuscript. And then I decided to enter the contest, Pitch Wars. And that was really the right decision for me because I got a great mentor, Christian Wright, and she helped me just Help my book in whatever was lacking, and I'm trying to get the year. In 2019, I did that for a few months, and I submitted my clean pitch was manuscript to an agent. A query letter, and within hours after I emailed her a query, she requested a fall, and within hours of the fall, she wanted to have a conversation with me, and then she she offered to be my agent. And about two weeks after that. I got a publishing deal from Berkeley Romance So the querying process in general after three books was incredibly long and hard, but the process of getting an agent and an editor after that was very fast. Yes, that's the whole story. (laughs) that's,
0: That's amazing. I love hearing how it works like that because most people would hear your story, Jane, and go, oh, overnight success. You know, you sent it to the agent and you immediately got a request and then you immediately got representation and then you immediately sold the book. But what they don't see is, you know, the two starter novels that you wrote that were never going to see the light of day, but that you learned so much while writing those novels and that you had to get those novels written so that you could learn from them to get to the point where you were able to write a novel that somebody wanted. In terms of the critique you got from your Pitch Wars mentor. What were the kind of things that she was giving you feedback on? Because I find that many emerging writers tend to make the same mistakes in the same areas. So was yours structural? Was it pacing? Was it characterization? Can you recall what what the areas
5: were that she suggested you work on? Um, I wouldn't say. I would say it was more specific to the plot. My other two books, I learned so much from the mistakes I made and the feedback agents gave me and also the conference I went. I did a lot of reading and I learned from those. So I came into my second, my third book, Ties That Tether, with a lot more knowledge. So the feedback my mentor gave me was more in terms of specific to the plot and just taking out one chapter and writing another. And I, I don't think it's too general in terms of other writing advice, but just more specific for me.
0: Right. And, and your agent, was it a Canadian agent or did you pitch an American agent? Because the question we often get on the podcast is that there's people sort of all over the world and they feel like if they're in, I mean, I know you're in Canada, but there'll be people who will be in Nigeria for for example, who will say, oh, there aren't many literary agents in Nigeria, but the world has become so small that as writers, we can pitch agents anywhere. And same goes for when agents pitch to publishers is, you know, just because you Canadian doesn't mean your book will only be published in Canada. So so how how did you go about that part of it?
5: Well, um, when I was querying my other books, my first two novels, I did query Canadian agents there aren't a lot, but I know of one, I can't remember the name of the agency, but I do know of like one or two very good agent Canadian agencies. So I did send emails to those um, agencies, but nothing came of that. But my Pitch Wars book, Ties a Tether, I sent to... American agent who I've had my eye on for a while. It was actually the third time I was querying her for my <laughs> second book. So <laughs> she rejected me before. Um, she doesn't remember but she rejected me like twice before, but it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> it's, it's so funny. They don't remember them rejecting us, but boy do we remember the rejection. But I yeah. love that you know she rejected you and then went on to represent you. Could you tell us who the agent is and what agent she, she is with?
5: Yes, she is Kevin Leon from Marcel and Leon Literary Agency. She's hey, a wonderful agent.
0: What what made you specifically want to work with her that you pitched her so many times? What research did you do or or how did you go about deciding she was the person you wanted?
5: There's this source for authors who are querying. I can't query track trackers. And it's called Query Tracker, I believe. Yeah. And I typed in her name. First, I went on her website and I saw the kind of authors she represented, romance, historical romance. And I liked the authors that she represented. I also looked her up on Query Tracker and a lot of authors who um, emailed, who queried her, said that she replied really quickly, which is absolutely true, and that's really important to me because as an author, I'm anxious enough. So if an uh, agent, even agent, replies to the uh, query quick, that's just a plus for me. And a lot of people have great feedback. I also paid for a source called Publishers Marketplace. It's very popular. I think it's about $25 a month. So I paid for one month and I just went through a list of romance agents and I looked at their deals and how often they made deals. And I based that off my querying process. Those are very two helpful resources.
0: That's a really great uh, suggestion because a lot of people say, oh, $25 a month, I can't afford that. But like you say, if you just do it for one month, that's all you really need it for. You can get all the information you need in one month yes it's such a
5: helpful resource it just helps you narrow your search down when I first started querying agents I would just google and go through like different agents agencies and look at the different like an agency can have like 10 agents and I would have to look through all of them that's like a waste of time but with publishers marketplace I just type in the genre and I get a bunch of agents and their deals which is just very helpful
0: Yeah, that's really, really great, great advice. In terms of your readership, do you have your readers interacting with you quite often in in terms of social media and things like that, reaching out to you? Do you do book clubs?
5: Yes, um, readers are very nice. I've gotten a lot of emails since my book was released last year, and I'm constantly getting messages on social media. I'm very active on my Instagram, not on Twitter, but I usually always reply to messages that people send me on Instagram. Something that
0: I'm interested in as well is in terms of your reader demographic, because this is something that writers sometimes have to tell agents who they think their demographic is. And are the people who are reading your novels the people you kind of expected your average
5: reader to be? or have your readers surprised you? Um, Good question. You know what? I feel like Berkeley and the marketing team knows the audience to market to. I think my audience is what I expect um, women from maybe 18 to maybe it could be in your 50s. I did do a book club last year with a uh, group of women about like 20 or so who were all white Jewish women and I was like and they told me they related to my book a lot of them and I that to me was a surprise because I don't know but I didn't expect that I I thought maybe my audience would be women who are black a lot of them <laughs> yeah because of a black author but I I don't know that still surprises me today, and it's really so humbling what also surprises me is a lot of white men reading my book that really does surprise me as well men for one white men for another um, yeah that, um, the
0: men reading a book surprises me the having you know the white jewish woman reading a book that that doesn't surprise me at all but so so what there's a lot of romance readers out there who are
5: men you know what i don't know <laughs> I really don't know. It's it really is. I feel like people don't market to them, but maybe we should be marketing to them because there are some who are interested. Yeah. And and
0: what is your readership like? Do you have a, a readership in Nigeria that are steady fans of your work or, or not really? Because so for me, I'm a South African who now lives in Canada. Um, and my work isn't really widely available in South Africa. So if people go into a bookstore and sort of ask for it, they can get it in, and it's always out just after launch, but not usually read within within my own country. So that's why I ask about Nigeria for you.
5: Yeah, I do know there are some bookstores in Nigeria that do sell my books. Quite frankly, I'm not too sure about book clubs in Nigeria and how many they are. I don't live there. When I lived there, I was young and I and I knew I wasn't really into books at that time, so I wouldn't know. But I do know of some bookstores and they do carry my book. I just don't know too much information about that. But it is yeah. something I want to look into because people in Nigeria reach out to me and often say, where can I get your book? And quite frankly, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know the names of the bookstores. I'm not familiar with them. So
0: Yeah, I've found Nigeria to be big readers. I've had a lot of sort of readers reach out from, from Nigeria and book clubs and that. And that was really heartening. And I'm sure they must love seeing this romance novel playing out in Nigeria as well. Everybody loves seeing their countries represented. And something that's frustrating is that I have a bunch of students who try and set a novel in Toronto or in Canada, and then they try and market the novel and they get told, well, nobody's really interested in Toronto. They want American stories or things like that. So was that ever anything you were told? Well, people aren't really interested in Nigeria or Toronto aspect? I'm not sure if your if your stories were also based in Toronto or just Nigeria.
5: How did that work for you? My first novel, Tizat Tav, is based completely in Toronto. And there was no issue with that. Um, I never. My publishers never told me that my story shouldn't be based there because they just never did, and that's great. I do know some other authors whose books are based in Toronto, Canadian authors whose books are based in Toronto. One of my friends, for example, who's the author of like Home, her book is also based in Canada. I feel like before that was like probably an issue. I don't think it is too much anymore because I'm seeing more of it and it's great. While writing my second novel, it takes place in San Francisco and mostly in Nigeria there was never any issue. I think my publishers love the fact that it was in a different country with a different culture. I think it was interesting and fascinating and never had an issue with that.
0: That's wonderful. And that is hugely encouraging because we should have more diverse stories. We should have diverse voices. We should have stories that take place all over the world because every culture is interesting and is different. And it's really incredibly frustrating to have to be seeing the same stories, the same characters playing out in the exact same places. So um, for those writers out there who are living in far flung places and feel like they have to base their novels in the US or whatever, that, you know, clearly not the case. And it's it's wonderful to see more diverse characters being represented by traditional publishers. So Jane, it's been an absolute joy chatting with you. We're now at the end of our time, unfortunately. Do you have any words of wisdom that you can leave with our listeners who are in the querying trenches or perhaps romance writers or women's Uh, fiction writers specifically any advice you would like to leave them with on their writing journey? I'm sure for
5: writers in general I'll just say not every failure is actually a failure an agent might say no but they might be nice enough to give you the reason for your no completely take that advice the critique and if they do say no be brave enough to put yourself out there and send them an email and say i appreciate you reading my query. can you please tell me what part worked if you have the time just ask them some might be nice enough to help you out so um i just feel like every no isn't isn't a door shutting in your face so take advantage of it and try to grow and learn from it. And one thing I'm really grateful for is the fact that I kept a journal throughout the times I was peering and got multiple rejections, sometimes three in a day. I recently found this journal and I read it and it really is so humbling. If when you do succeed, it's good to look back and say that I was there and I'm here. It's just, it's, it's not a writing, it's not a writing advice, but I guess it, it's so humbling. It's so empowering to know that you, you accomplished something so ma- major despite the difficulties. So keep track of that, write about it, find a way to just know that you went through that. You never forget because it's, it's so humbling and it's also so empowering and you can use the story that you remember, the hard times that you remember to help someone else through their hard times.
0: Love that, Jane. Excellent, excellent advice. As is, you know, reaching out to agents. All you can do is ask and say, is there any feedback you can give me? And if they're too busy, they don't reply to you. There's certainly no harm in asking. And that's something as well that many of our listeners struggle with. They go, oh, we don't get feedback. How do we know what to do? But like you say, just reply and and ask, you know? So awesome, Jane. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It was lovely chatting with you. And uh, for our listeners, the book is called The Sweetest Red. Remedy, definitely go out and get that and read it and then reach out to Jane on social media and let her know what you thought
5: yes please thank you
0: <laughs> and that's it for today's episode if you have any questions about writing or publishing please email me at the at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you I hope you'll join us for next week's show in the meantime keep at it remember it just takes one yes